Castro and his cohorts slowly but surely squeezed everything they could out of the people of Cuba. More and more, the shelves were empty, and if you did work, 90% of your income had to go to the government. Julio Gonzalez joined the army, more than likely because there was no other opportunities available. But to find yourself out of favor with the leadership of the day is not difficult. And after deserting his post, Gonzalez was jailed in 1974. He remained a prisoner in the filthy rodent investor structure for six years, hoping and praying for a way out of one of the worst prisons the third world had to offer. And in 1980, an opportunity arrived too good to pass by. By 1980, Cuba under Castro was under complete Leninist Marxist rule. Castro had alienated allies and the citizens of Cuba were suffering under the communist regime. Public executions were common and fear and hunger was the order of the day. Only after 10,000 citizens stormed the Peruvian embassy begging for asylum did the rest of the world take notice. The Cold War was still the status quo, but the world was slowly but surely becoming more aware of the atrocities taking place and finally the desperate pleas of the Cuban people were heard. Castro must have realized the number of disgruntled citizens was becoming a problem. Thus he opened the Mariel Harbor and told the people of Cuba that if they were unhappy, or in his words, did not have revolutionary blood, they were welcome to leave. Jimmy Carter, one of the nine presidents Castro and his many decades of power would deal with, agreed that 3,500 Cubans would be welcome in the United States. Carter would later be heavily criticized for this decision. But despite warnings that Castro was not to be trusted, America opened its arms the way it has done for centuries to the people of Cuba. Castro, ever the opportunist, told all prisoners that they could leave with the migration or stay in prison. In his words, he had flushed the toilets of Cuba. It was during this time that Gonzalez grabbed a chance and got onto one of the 1700 vessels of all shapes, size, and conditions by lying and saying that he was a drug dealer needing passage to the land of milk and honey. I might not be a Kenny Rogers fan, but I doubt there's an Al Pacino movie that I have not seen, and Scarface is and will remain a cult classic. It starts off with scenes of Castro making a speech in Spanish, and then you see the exodus of raggedy boats and dilapidated floating folsoms called ships arriving in Miami. In less than 90 days, between April and June of 1980, more than 110,000 Cubans flee Cuba. They come the 140 kilometers from the Port of Mariel to Key West, Florida, in nearly 2,000 boats. All that footage is Those bedraggled individuals looking dazed and stepping off the floating coffins and nothing but the rags on their bodies were not actors. Although only 50 miles from Miami, the distance between the states and Mariel must have seemed endless on vessels as the one Gonzalez found himself on. Guards armed with sticks in one hand and beers in the other would beat and degrade passengers mercilessly and it is difficult to estimate how many survived the trip. By October 1980, when the agreement was dissolved, an estimated 125,000 Cubans had spilled onto the banks of Miami. The xenophobia and prosecution they faced once in the land of the free and home of the brave was nothing compared to the degradation and the oppression they suffered under Castro. Amongst them, a stranger in a strange land was Julio Gonzalez. At the age of 26, he had a hard life and owned nothing. Freedom Town Detention Center, where refugees were processed, was ill-prepared for the influx, and soon Gonzalez was moved to Pennsylvania, then Arkansas, and finally, this Rolling Stone will come to rest in New York. 
Dr. Norman Anderson recently did a study in Sweden with regards to the rate of depression amongst immigrants and Swedish second-generation citizens and found that immigrants have a 40% higher rate of depression. This is not only due to the fact that they had more than likely left a motherland with all that are familiar, but also not healed from whatever scarred them enough to seek greener pastures. Sweden is a progressive country that provides proper integration and assists the new citizens in adapting to their new normal, but most countries provide nothing but asylum. Gonzalez worked a couple of low-paying jobs for the next 10 years, and he found love in 1984 when he met Lydia Feliciano, in whom he would have a relationship for six years. Life would have been better, but every time he felt like complaining, he would remind himself of hunger and hardship of the people in his homeland. His neighbors and the people who knew him would later describe him as a quiet man always polite, helpful, and soft-spoken demeanor. The Bronx during this time was a neighborhood social economic reform had forgotten. By 1980, 40% of the buildings were burned out or vandalized. Perhaps the demographic of mostly Spanish immigrants was the reason the suburb was forgotten, but at the time, it was also the area with the eighth highest density population. Despite the challenges the urban community of Bronx faced, there was a sense of community. Social clubs popped up everywhere and became a place where migrants from Puerto Rico and other ethnic South American natives could congregate and enjoy their native tongue and traditions. On the morning of March 24th, 1990, Julio Gonzalez woke up tiny room with nothing more than a bed and a cupboard and no doubt he felt pure desperation. His girlfriend of six years, Lydia Feliciano, had broken up with him and he also lost his job at the lab factory where he was employed in the warehouse. On top of everything else, he was behind in his rent and his landlord had become impatient. I can relate. I've had days where it felt that fate was piling one problem after another on top of me to the point where I would feel my spirit buckle under the pressure. Gonzalez felt at his lowest point of his existence. That evening, he made a fatal mistake of taking his last couple of bucks and making his way to Happy Land Social Club, where Lydia worked as a coat checker. That night, the walls of Happy Land was pulsing with the music of South America. Not only was there a party of 10 celebrating a 50th birthday, there was the Undawn celebrating Carnival. And with the entrance cheap and the beers even cheaper, the club was packed with Patreons, dancing away the longing for their country and drinking away their troubles of the day. Men and women were flirting at the bar and young bodies clad in cheap colorful club coterre were moving to the sounds of Carlos Santana. I've had strong opinions about the monsters I've spoken about in the previous episodes. My feelings about Gonzalez and his actions to follow are not as judgmental or black and white. Personally, I've had dark days when I truly believe the only medicine to ease the pain of failure, rejection, and despair is a bottle of Jack Daniels. Needless to say, these deep dives into the bottle resulted in me making some very stupid and irresponsible decisions that ended my tale in some mighty deep hot water. But I suppose I can thank my lucky stars. I did not do irreversible damage. Gonzalez started drinking early that evening, and by 3 a.m. the following morning, he was fired up with Dutch courage to confront Lydia. The club was very busy, and she, in an attempt to get rid of Gonzalez and evidently done with the relationship, Lydia told him it was over, 
and as a matter of fact, she had suitors lining up to date her. This statement would be the straw that broke the camel's back. Gonzalez became belligerent and the volume of the argument caught the attention of the bouncers who swiftly ejected him out of the club. As he left, he was heard shouting, You'll see, tomorrow you are not going to work here anymore. I told you, I swear to it, I'm going to shut this place down. Rejected, broke, unemployed, drunk, and without any hope for his future, Gonzalez made a fatal decision. He picked up an empty gallon oil canister and made his way to the nearest petrol station. The clerk behind the counter originally did not want to sell Gonzalez the dollar of gas he supposedly needed for his imaginary vehicle. But another customer who knew Gonzalez vouched for him. Many years later, I am sure the clerk would replay that moment over and over in his mind, wondering how his actions and words in that instant, if different, could have prevented the tragedy that was minutes from unfolding. At 3.20 a.m., the jilted lover returned to Happy Land. By now, most Patreons were inside 1595 Southern Boulevard, enjoying the company of fellow Hondurians in the balmy evening, and the entrance was empty. He dumped the gasoline onto the steps leading into the club, struck two matches, as the flames licked at the only entrance and the exit the club had to offer. I want you to take that in for a minute. A dollar's worth of gas and two matches facilitated by a drunken loser and within minutes a catastrophe would unfold. No expensive assault rifles and no manifesto. Just a drunk idiot with a grudge. Ironically, Lydia, while assisting two patrons, was the first to see the fire forcing passage she yelled, fire, fire, and with no customers in tow, she made for an exit that had been closed and locked up to prevent people from entering the club without paying the $5 entrance fee. Ruben Valladares, the disc jockey, heard Lydia's cries and shut down the music and turned on the lights, repeating the warnings. Trying to escape the fire, he would not only sustain third-degree burns all over his body, but he had inevitably created a chimney effect by opening a hole to escape through. Outside passers-by would later tell of how they first heard the festive beat of the music and then the muffled cries of the Patreon and within minutes, nothing. With his ill-intended, minimal effort, Julio Gonzalez had created the perfect gas chamber. The only exit out of the hell the partygoers had was engulfed in flames, but the furnace at the door was not what killed 87 people that night. The coroner's report would later reveal that most of the Patreons died of the combination of lack of oxygen, carbon dioxide, and other poisons rather than the actual fire. Toxic fumes from the melting plastic and paint create a suffocating death trap that eventually only six would survive. With each breath, they were doomed. The fact that death came quickly would be cold comfort to the loved ones the victims left behind. Gonzalez stood on the pavement outside the club with a sudden realization of what he had done. The arrival of ambulances and fire engines made the reality of his actions even more evident. He took the bus home to his small room and on the way, he wept and regret only hindsight can bring. Once at his dwelling, he went to his neighbor, whose girlfriend would later testify that a tearful Gonzalez told her he had burned down the club and that he had killed Lydia. She took in the disheveled and inebriated man reeking of gasoline and told him to go to bed. Writing the confession as the boozy tirade of a man suffering from hopelessness and broken heart. Gonzalez, still smelling like a Roman candle, went to his room, collapsed on his bed, and finally passed out. At the Southern Boulevard, a different drama was unfolding. 
Emergency services arrived in droves, and within five minutes, the fire was extinguished. Rescuers would encounter the first bodies only five feet from the entrance. Downstairs were the tables, chairs, and bar was. Patreons sat still with half-drunken bottles of beer in their hands as if frozen in time. To the 19 victims downstairs, death came very quickly indeed. This scene alone could crack the veneer of even the most hardened firemen. But the scene that greeted them upstairs would maim and scare the psyche and haunt the dreams of the men and women from that day. Nine years. You don't forget. Something sticks with you like that. Good evening, everyone. I'm Rolanda Watts. That firefighter said it all. It is a scene we will never forget, a catastrophe we will never forget. Upstairs, where the dance area was, bodies lay trampled, some holding their throats, some holding hands, some trampled by fellow clubbers trying to escape flames and realizing there was no way out. The surreal scene of entangled bodies in the 20 to 40 foot space left the first responders stunned into minutes of silence as they took into the magnitude of the disaster. No one who did not get out survived. The investigation to the cause of the fire started immediately and detectives knew they had a solid lead when they were told about the fight Lydia and Gonzalez had as well as the blatant threats he verbally flung at the club and its occupants. Gonzalez, still clad in his gasoline-soaked clothes, offered no resistance when the officers arrived at his door that afternoon. He willingly accompanied them to the police station, and before the investigators had placed a cup of coffee in front of him, he confessed to setting the fire. He was immediately arrested and charged with 87 counts of murder and 87 counts of arson. As the doors of his cell closed behind him, the magnitude of his predicament and the enormity of his crimes sunk in. From the moment Gonzalez struck his first match to the point the fire was extinguished took about 25 minutes. Watching the newsreel footage, I once again gained a tremendous amount of respect for first responders, EMTs, and firemen. Visuals show how these heroes carried out bodies to the refrigerated truck while trying to stop hysterical loved ones from entering the building and witnessing a horror no amount of intensive training could ever prepare rescue workers for. Looking at the eyes of these fine folks, you can tell that this event has and will leave a dark shadow on the men and women working the scenes that day. Many would later have to receive intensive therapy because frankly, the human mind was not programmed to witness this amount of mindless carnage in one tragedy. Back in the Bronx, the Bush Telegraph had begun its wireless transmission, and as families and loved ones descended onto Happy Land, the decision was made to take the deceased to the morgue in order to make identifying easier. A command center was set up at the nearby primary school where the beloved parents, siblings, partners, and friends would wait to identify photographs of their loved ones. The loss to the community was devastating. In a twist of irony, the fire occurred the same day as a Triangle Shirt factory fire in 1911 during which 157 workers who were locked in the factory perished in a similar fire. Without intention, Julio Gonzalez had made his mark on the history pages by becoming, at that time, the mass murderer with the highest body count in American history. Investigators would later determine that the club was ordered to close down in 1988. Due to having no fire escape, no sprinkler system, no fire exit, and other buildings regulation violations, but the order was never followed up. One good thing that came from the tragedy, although short-lived, was that finally the spotlight was on the Bronx and the problems the community had been facing and trying to raise about building violations for years. 
Within hours, city officials and politicians descended to the borough. Even President George W. Bush promised that stricter regulations should be enforced to close down illegal social clubs and to enforce stricter monitoring regulations. By 1992, President Reagan would choose to funnel funds set aside for the upliftment of the impoverished neighborhoods into other avenues. And once again, the people of the Bronx and many other parts of New York where the minimum wage earners and disadvantaged find themselves was forgotten. Jay Weiss, husband of film star Kathleen Turner, who was the manager at the time of the fire, was fined for not adhering to the warnings made by building inspectors. And in a rather callous statement, Turner stated that the fire might as well have happened at the McDonald's. The actual owners of the building were found not responsible since they could prove that they had tried to evict the tenants. On March 28th, the first of many funerals would take place. By this time, funeral homes were overrun, and 17 caskets would be leading the incredibly sad parade from the church to the cemetery. The street would later be known as the River of Tears. Naturally, the courtroom was packed with grieving loved ones, most clutching dog-eared photos of victims. Julio Gonzalez was found guilty by jury of his peers, and in September, he was found guilty of 174 different charges. For each charge, he was sentenced to 25 years to be served concurrently. Once again, Gonzalez managed to break the record by receiving the highest sentence ever to be handed down in the state of New York at that time. He came up for parole during 2015, but for whatever reason, he was denied release. He eventually passed away in 2016 at the age of 61 from a heart attack he suffered while being hosted at the Clinton Correctional Service in upstate New York. The popular group Duran Duran would release the song Sin of the City and Joe Jackson would write the song Happy Land, commemorating the day so many lost their lives. Although the tragedy occurred more than three decades ago, those who lost beloved members of their family and friends often return. The structure had been demolished and now the grounds where Happy Land once stood is a memorial ground. Mourners go and place flowers at the foot of the six-foot memorial with the names of the 87 victims engraved on its surface in remembrance of those who fell victim to the reckless actions of a desperate, drunken individual who ended up taking his frustrations out on an innocent crowd. The name of the street has also been changed to the plaza of the 87, but I doubt the tributes, no matter how well-meaning, would soften the sharp longing loved ones would feel when remembering those who meant so much to them and who died too young in the Happy Land fire. And that, my friends, is the story of Julio Gonzalez and the Happy Land fire. Please remember to follow us, and if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please share it. That really does help. And our podcast pick of the week is True Crime Kent. The banter between Kent and the operator often leaves me in stitches. I am always looking forward to the next episode. But till next time, remember the real monsters hide in plain sight.